Welcome to Women on the Line, a community radio national feminist current affairs program featuring the voices of women and gender diverse people produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Emma Hart. And it was an abuse that was delivered by the system, sanctioned by the system and accepted by, by most people. Women on the Line acknowledges that this program is produced and presented on the land of the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nations and that their sovereignty was never ceded. We acknowledge their elders past and present, as well as the traditional owners of the land on which you're hearing us from. This week on the program, we bring you selections from Stop the Expansion of the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, a recent online event hosted by Victorian Women Lawyers, the peak body of women lawyers in Victoria. The discussion features UN woman Vicky Roach, Principal Legal Officer of the Law and Advocacy Centre for Women Jill Pryor, Sarah, member of the Homes Not Prisons Steering Committee, and Karen Fletcher, Executive Officer of Feminist Abolitionist Advocacy and Support Service Flat Out. The Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, or DPFC, is a women's prison on the western edge of Nam, Melbourne, and to understand the implications of its proposed expansion by the Victorian State Government, we'll first hear from Anita, co-chair of the Justice Committee at Victorian Women Lawyers, to introduce event panellists in more detail, before facilitator Karen provides some context on the broken logic behind expanding the prison and opens the conversation. I just want to briefly introduce all of our panellists here today. So firstly, we have Vicky Roach. Vicky is a UN woman who, along with her mother, were both members of the Stolen Generation. Vicky, who left school in year seven, went on to gain a master's degree in writing from Swinburne University while in prison. And notably, also while in prison, Vicky participated in the 2007 High Court Challenge that succeeded in striking out legislation which banned prisoners who were serving three years and under from voting. And in the same year was a joint winner of the Tim McCoy Human Rights Award. Our second panellist today is Jill Pryor. Jill is the inaugural Principal Legal Officer of the Law and Advocacy Centre for Women. Jill is also previously the Acting Principal Legal Officer at the Aboriginal Family Violence Prevention and Legal Service Victoria and the Principal Legal Officer at the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service where she worked for 10 years. Our third panellist here today is Sarah. Sarah has been a part of the Homes Not Prisons Steering Committee since May 2021. Sarah is driven towards social change and abolishing the carceral system, dismantling current destructive systemic structures which are destroying lives, and to dismantle the system that is based on idealised patriarchal notion that has been socialised to render women powerless. And finally, our moderator and panellist for the event today is Karen Fletcher. Karen is a lawyer and the executive officer of Flat Out, a community organisation that supports women and trans and gender diverse people to get out and stay out of prison. She has also worked as a prison advocacy lawyer at Fitzroy Legal Service and Prisoners Legal Service Queensland. Karen will also be facilitating today's conversation with our panellists. Thanks, Anita. I'd like to acknowledge that I'm speaking from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and acknowledge the ongoing colonisation process uh, that involves the criminal legal system and imprisonment and incarceration uh, and the resistance of First Nations people to colonisation, incarceration and all the harms that are associated with colonisation and the use of incarceration and policing as a tool in that process. 
Well, I'm from the Homes Not Prisons campaign, along with my colleagues, Vicky Roach and Sarah. I just thought I'd give a little bit of an outline of the Homes Not Prisons campaign before I introduce Vicky and Sarah and Jill. So we started with the announcement of the expansion or the intended expansion of the Dame Phyllis Frost Prison in March last year, 2021. There was an announcement that the prison would be expanded from its current 604 bed capacity by 106 beds to a total of 710, and that would include 40 management unit cells, which are essentially solitary confinement cells, to replace the existing SWAN 1 and SWAN 2 solitary confinement cells that are currently at DPFC. The budget for the 106-bed expansion of DPFC is announced to be 188.9 million, and we did some research and found that this would be sufficient to build 1,000 new public housing dwellings Operating costs for the 106 new cells will be at least 12.5 million a year, which would be enough for basic operating costs to support criminalised women and their children in public housing in more than 1,600 public housing dwellings. So we formulated the campaign to call on the government to reallocate the money from an expansion of DPFC to the establishment of long-term secure public housing dwellings and support for criminalised women and their children as an alternative to imprisonment. When DPFC opened um, 20 years ago, it had a capacity of 164. It's already grown over the last 20 years by 440 cells. The number of women at the prison peaked in July 2018 at 604 women. That's, that's the highest it's been in its existence. In the three years since 2018, now nearly four years, that number has been decreasing, and that's particularly the case during COVID. On the 31st of March, so at the end of last month, there were 318 women at DPFC. So why is the government proposing to have a capacity of more than double the number of women who are currently in the prison is the question. And one of the answers is that there has been an absolutely exponential growth in the number of women remanded into prison, charged with criminal offences, refused bail, and then remanded into custody to await uh, court proceedings for the charges that they face. In April last year, for the first time, the number of women in prison on remand was 221 in DPFC at this time last year, for the first time exceeded the number of sentenced women, which was 219. So that was the tipping point where we went from more sentenced women than remanded women to the other way around. And now that difference is increasing. At the end of last month, more than 60% of the women in the prison were on remand, unsentenced, awaiting trial or court proceedings, and over 90% of receptions each month are now women refused bail and placed in the prison on remand. And we know that the vast majority of these women do not go on to serve sentences. They either don't receive sentences at all when they do get to court, or they're sentenced to time served and released on a plea of guilty. And there's enormous pressure on these women, particularly women who have children, and that's the majority of women who are remanded into custody, enormous pressure on them to plead guilty when they do get to court because they'll be advised that if they do decide to plead not guilty and wait for a trial and make their defence of self-defence or necessity or whatever their defence is, then they can be waiting years for the trial to come on. And that's particularly the case during COVID when the courts have been clogged and it's been really long delays for people to actually get to court. So we'll hear much more during the course of this discussion about why it's so much harder for women charged with criminal offences to get bail and why it's so much more likely that women are going to be placed into the prison on remand and why the government 
think that this is a reason why they need to double have double the capacity of CPSCs and the number of women that are currently in there. One overriding issue for this group as Victorian women lawyers and for women generally is that this is a very gendered issue. Just a couple of pointers on that and I'll invite Vicky and Sarah to comment on these, but the overwhelming majority of women at BPSC and in all prisons in Australia have been victim survivors of physical, sexual and family violence, either as children or as adults or both. The Australian Institute of Health and Welfare has found that 90% of women in prison are mothers and the majority of these are primary carers for their children. And so the children, when women are in prison, children are either placed with relatives or in cases where there isn't relatives or kin to care for them into out-of-home care. And we believe that there is a corresponding increase in the number of children going into out-of-home care and residential care and losing their primary care as a result of the increased number of women being placed in prison. This is a particularly gendered issue because women are much more likely to be primary carers than men. Just one anecdote on that, there's an inquiry going on at the moment into the impact of women's imprisonment on, or parents' imprisonment on children. And that has heard evidence from Shine for Kids, which is an agency that helps kids visit their parents in prison, that at the men's prisons during children's visits, there's children everywhere running around because their mums bring the kids in to see their dads. But at DPFC, the place is deserted because there's such a problem trying to get children who are in care kinship care or care of the department, state care, in to visit their mothers. And so it is a very gendered issue and it's an issue that is impacting a lot of children in Victoria that the loss of their primary carer, i.e. their mother, to imprisonment. Self-medication with legal and illicit drugs in response to trauma experienced by women is an overriding cause of women being charged with criminal offences. And this has got a correlation also with homelessness. Even though less than 1% of people in Victoria are estimated to be homeless, more than a quarter of the women who end up in prison are homeless at the time that they were in prison. And this is even higher for Aboriginal women. Aboriginal women entering prison are much more likely to be homeless than non-Aboriginal women. Drug use prior to entering prison is common amongst women. Corrections themselves found that more than 60% of women reported that they were using drugs daily before they were put into prison. And perhaps one of the most disturbing things in Victoria, and perhaps Jill might talk a little bit more about this as somebody who's trying to address this, but more than half of the women who were remanded reported that they didn't even apply for bail. And this is even higher for Aboriginal women. They're not even bothering to apply because the new bail laws are very difficult for them to judge without complex legal representation. So a lot of women are just being remanded without even making that application. So I just wanted to introduce particularly first, I suppose, Vicky, who is an elder of the Homes Not Prisons campaign, an elder of Flat Out, where I work, I'm the executive officer of Flat Out, and we've had a long association with Vicky, and an elder of the perhaps, campaign for the human rights of people in prison, particularly women in prison. Vicky, could you talk to us about whether imprisoning women improves community safety, and perhaps touch on the intergenerational impact of the imprisonment of women on kids and intergenerational imprisonment, and whether that is improving community safety? Well, in my opinion, of course, it doesn't. Um, it becomes intergenerational. We, we know that the children who, of parents who have been to prison often wind up in prison themselves. So it's um, 
self-defeating. It's creating another generation of, of people to put in prison, if you ask me. The impact on the women and the children personally and emotionally is immense. The women are traumatised. The children especially are traumatised. And, and I, I know in prison... In my own experience, a lot of women who were able to see their children, you know, they were in their family's care or whatever, didn't want them coming into prison and being exposed to that environment and, um, you know, possibility of strip searching and all that sort of thing. And the same thing also with women who had, their children with them in prison. They were reluctant to take them on visits because the child would be strip searched, you know, before and after after the visit. Yeah, they say they do it sensitively and all that sort of thing, but, you know, what's sensitive about, you know, stripping a child? They say, oh, it's just like changing their nappy, you know, but, of course, it's not. Prison is particularly damaging to women and, as we know, the statistics of women who have experienced uh, family and domestic violence, intimate partner violence, sexual abuse are more likely to be in prison. You know, the figures uh, of women who have experienced those things are, like, extraordinarily high. You were talking about 90% there, Karen. So the impact of, of a woman going to going to prison and and suffering through these further traumas, it's it, to me it was an extension of the intimate partner violence I'd experienced through my life, um, and it was an abuse that was delivered by the system sanctioned by the system and accepted by by most people. But it was, in fact, exactly the same behaviour that an abusive partner exhibits, um, controlling your money, controlling your body, you know, having absolute control over your body and that of your children to the point of being able to take them away from you. So... Um, Yes, going going to prison is is or being in prison is, is a very gendered issue, a very gendered very gendered topic, because it invariably does affect women and their children so profoundly. Women on the line on community radio around Australia. You're listening to Women on the Line. You were just listening to you and woman Vicky Roach speaking as part of Stop the Expansion of the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, an online event put on by Victorian women lawyers. This is panel facilitator Karen Fletcher. Do you think that's the case, Vicky, even with short stints? We're seeing, you know, I think the figure is something like 80 to 90% of women are spending less than a month at DPSC. Sorry, you might want to comment on this as well. Is this something that can result in losing children, jobs, accommodation? Everything. Yeah. You can speak to this too, Sarah. Yeah, thanks, Vicky. 100%. I feel like, you know, the system is so degrading, you know, for women and and the children who are also 
are suffering at the hands of the system too, you know. And I think to put women into prison, regardless of how long it is, it's the fact that that stays with the woman even when they are released, you know, and um, and all the things that they've got to continue to go through when they're really just trying to survive. Most women that are actually, you know, incarcerated aren't in there because they they like to commit crimes and do things like that. It's all survival stuff. Like what they want to do is they just want to get through, you know, like there's so much poverty and there's so much, the cost of living is just so hard to get by. You can't, you can't live in this world anymore, really, if you're on Centrelink benefits because... Unless, you know, unless you've got a side hustle. Exactly. You know, and, like, and at the end of the day, the system really sets people up to fail because I reckon it's a, it's a full setup because really there's so many things that the system, like, you know, the government can put in place to eradicate the problem and, you know, and start looking at solutions and working through the core stuff, but they choose not to and they choose to continue to do whatever's going to capitalise and make more and more, um, more money for them, you know, and make it look like, that people in jail deserve to be in there and they're criminals and they don't care. And really, when we look at the majority of people incarcerated, the people who are lost, who are broken and who continue to not be able to understand how to navigate the society that we live in. It's like people can't seem to grasp the concept that prisons aren't full of, you know, people who are going to stab you or shoot you or rob your home or, you know, blow things up or, you know, they're not full of dangerous people. They're full of people who, like you've said, especially with women, are crimes of survival or or to take care of children, particularly when, when a partner, an abusive partner perhaps, or even just one that is an addict, even a gambling addict takes all the money, um, has to make sure she can look after her kids and it's impossible to do when you're starting from a place of homelessness to begin with and that's often the result of of family violence and domestic violence as well family and domestic being homeless I mean absolutely like when when you know looking at the stats but also looking at women who are incarcerated you know you see anybody who's in their through any means of violence, it was because majority of all of them were trying to protect themselves, you know, yeah. from a violent relationship or somebody who was who had initially instigated their defence, you know, um, but yet they were the ones who end up incarcerated because that's just the way the system works, isn't it? It's, it's the way the laws are written so then that that falls back onto the woman instead of it look, being looked at like, the perpetrator, like the male, was the one who, you know, instigated that for months or years or however long, you know, and then and then things just get built up. But, you know, and when we see there's a high statistic, um, like a high rate of women who are incarcerated also have substance, um, substance use issues and stuff like that because that's a way of coping with a lot of, like, getting through life on the outside and, you know, and that's and that's the way that, for me personally, like I know that, that that was my forte. That was something that I ended up focusing everything on because of the fact that I didn't want to be myself. You know, I had a lot of underlying trauma and a lot of things that I needed to work through, but I had no way of working through it because everything just continued to pile up, pile up, you know, and the system continues to add more and more trauma to 
to people um, instead of trying to support people, you know, that the stigma needs to be changed and it needs to be fully removed and um, erased, really. It's too damaging. Yeah, yeah. On that point, Vicky, I was wondering, uh, both of you actually, the survival crimes is clearly the main reason why women are imprisoned, particularly economic. You know, we had the example in New South Wales of a woman sentenced to over two years imprisonment for social security fraud in a situation where she needed to claim the single parenting pension, even though she was in a relationship because that relationship was violent and the partner was using the money for gambling. So to be able to survive and feed her kids, she claimed a single parenting payment. That's a particularly clear example, but all the shoplifting and minor property crimes that are associated with drug use and, you know, the expense of, of illicit drugs far away. These are also resulting in the higher rates of imprisonment of Aboriginal women in particular. Do you think that relates to poverty and the living circumstances of First Nations women, First Nations people and communities in general, that these kinds of crimes of survival are even more targeted in Aboriginal communities and resulting in higher levels of incarceration and and deaths in custody? Absolutely. Well, when when a woman commits a crime in the first place, she's seen as deviant, like more deviant than a man, for example. You know, that's the way it is. Um, You know, women have this supposed role and we're, we're supposed to stay in our lane, not be out there committing crimes. So we we become, you know, double deviants, if you like. And like what happened with this woman with the with the Centrelink fraud. If you ask me, that wasn't fraud. You know, she she was having her money stolen from her and she couldn't get away from the man because there's no way to get away from somebody anymore because there's no housing. There's no um there's nowhere to go. There's no refuges left. Well, very few. And you have to wait to get in them. And when you're escaping domestic violence, you have to you have to pick your moment and go. You know, and it might not be at an optimum moment when you've, you know, got everything together because how can you? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's impossible. So you you do what you can to to keep your kids and whatever roof you've got over your head or what whatever circumstances you you can control under some sort of control and um, sometimes that means committing a crime but then so many things are, are criminalised and the bail laws have become so stringent and one-sided like like there was simply a, a knee-jerk badly thought out reaction to um the violence of a man mm-hmm. a man's violence against a woman and um like when when I was in jail for example they had a violence program in in the jail uh, but what it turned out to be and I was supposed to um attend it uh, because I was in a car well, I was the cause of the car accident, um, and I was supposed to attend this this violence group to to get my parole. And what I found out that it was it was simply the men's domestic violence program 
and they'd send it over to the women's prison. Like a lot of the programs in women's prison or a lot of the things that are done in women's prisons and to women through the legal process are knee-jerk reactions to, to the violence done by men, but they extend the consequences of that to women as well. And it's, well, like apart from being unfair, um, it's, it's not right and it results in what we're seeing, so many women in prison on bail, you know, or not on bail, not even having bail, not even mm. um, getting bail, even asking for it because they know they won't get it. Um, these things weren't thought out properly before they were enacted and, um to be perfectly honest, I don't think they would have cared, even if even if they had thought of it. I'll just go to Jill to talk about the bail laws and her work with the Law and Advocacy Centre for Women. Jill. Oh, look, there's, there's no time really for anything because what these two have said is, you know, it's really encapsulated all of the issues with a problem that's fundamentally broken and um, we keep applying the wrong salve to the problem, don't we? I mean... We're talking about bail, we're talking about incarceration, but actually all of all of these issues that, that these two have spoken about so eloquently and pointedly are about they're not solved by putting somebody in a cage. They're, they're solved by giving people things outside of that cage and, you know, we're solving issues in completely a bankrupt way. So I've written pages and pages of notes of thoughts I've had whilst listening to these guys, um, but perhaps you've asked me to talk about bail. So, look, I think the, the starting point of that is this, and bail can't sit alone. It cannot be just a discussion about bail because bail is connected to sentence. It's connected to liberty. It's connected to children. It's connected to all these other things. And what will change the bail landscape in addition to legislative change, um, and that's pretty key, is servicing a system that says we will bail you and there is something in place. Because the decision makers on bail are making decisions based on sometimes very, very black and white legislative constraints in the budget, which were brought in, as somebody said, I, I can't remember who said this, but because a, a white bloke did a bad thing um, and because of that, there was wholesale reform and wholesale reform. Very quick. Very, very quick. That's right. And what that did is create this landscape that applied then to everybody. It's an absolute nonsense. And the other thing is that women are often caught up in this um, the system, I guess, and in custody for breaching offences. And so we know that there are low-level property offences we know that there are drug offences, but breaching offences make up, I don't have the exact numbers, but a very large proportion of offences going in. And that's, we think about what breaching offences are, breaching corrections orders, breaching bail, which is now charged and pursued vehemently by police. That didn't used to be the case. Yeah. Breaching bail breaching corrections orders, probably breaching intervention orders at times. Certainly um, a lot of our clients are charged with breach intervention orders. But those breaching offences, so they're infractions of regulatory frameworks that we say, okay, um, you're now out in the community, 
good luck, go about your business. Sorry you don't have a house to go to. Sorry your house is temporary and you're going to move from one place to the next. And also we'd like you to go and do this program. We'd also like you to go and do that program. We notice you don't have your kids with you because we locked you up for a bit and so you've probably got that going on. But don't self-medicate, for goodness sake. You know, just deal with the fact that your kids have been removed. I mean, all of these are so interconnected. It's very difficult to sort of just say, well, here's bail and... If we we sort that out, it'll be right. That was Jill Pryor speaking as part of Stop the Expansion of the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, a recent online panel discussion hosted by Victorian women lawyers. As part of the selections from the event broadcast today, you also heard Vicky Roach, Sarah and Karen Fletcher. For more information, you can find the Homes Not Prisons campaign at homesnotprisons.com.au or visit Victorian Women Lawyers at vwl.asn.au. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is a community radio national feminist current affairs program featuring the voices of women and gender diverse people. This program was produced in Nam, Melbourne, with the amazing support of 3CR staff. A big thank you to them. Women on the Line is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and we greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womenonthelion at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 If you'd like more information about today's program or to listen to the show again, you can find what you need on the Women on the Line website, 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. I'm Emma Hart. Hope you can tune in again next time. Mm-hmm.